Thank you, everyone, for standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to jump into God's Word this morning in just a moment. If you have your Bibles, you can actually go ahead and pull them out and turn to Ezekiel chapter 45. We will be in verses 9 through 17 of Ezekiel 45 this morning. While you're turning or scrolling over to the book of Ezekiel, I want to take a second to highlight what Courtney mentioned just a moment ago in announcements, and that is Easter Sunday is right around the corner, and we could not be more excited for Easter. And so I encourage you to grab one of these invite cards and really think through and pray through, hey, who is it in my sphere of influence, the people that God has placed me in, who may be just one invitation away from encountering the life-changing love and hope of Jesus this season. Uh, I know myself, I don't like to tell people about the gospel, which is kind of crazy because I'm a pastor and uh, I'm in seminary and I'm someone who, who preaches God's word. And, and it's hard. It can be awkward to talk to people about Jesus. But as she mentioned, uh, people are so open this time of year to coming to church on, on Easter. And I actually have a next door neighbor who was who came to our church, who came to Providence through a Google search. Uh, so I personally am the worst evangelist ever because my next door neighbor literally came to church and Google is doing a better job of advancing the gospel in Denver than this guy. Uh, so I get it, but think through your coworkers, your neighbors, people you see at the gym, maybe at the grocery store, uh, because whenever I think, oh man, I don't want to be awkward or I don't want to you know, come across as overtly religious or something like that, I just have to pause and think to myself, where would I be if not for the grace of God? Where would I be if someone had not gone out of their way to invite me into God's forever family? And we have the opportunity to do that this Easter. Amen. Awesome. Well, if you have your Bibles and you've not found the book of Ezekiel, it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. If you're in the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke, you've gone too far, uh, take a left and you'll find it eventually. But we are toward the end of a five-week series here at Providence called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Josh kicked it off a few weeks ago and talked about the ugliness of sin and did a, a beautiful job talking about the ugliness of sin. He, he then talked about the bad, which is judgment. And then last Sunday, we heard from our very own Pastor Ray, and he talked about the promise, the good uh, from the Valley of the Dry Bones, and really talked about the fact that the promise that's in Ezekiel 37 doesn't actually apply to us anymore. Why is that? Because it's already been fulfilled. God's spirit has already been poured out, and we have new hearts already as his covenant people. Great, great message. Encourage you to go and check that out if you haven't already. And then next week, Josh is going to close out the series talking about the presence. Uh, my name is Hunter Hambrick, and I oversee our community groups here at Providence. If I haven't met you before, we'd love to talk with you after service. And this morning, I get the opportunity to preach on the better the prince. And I think that this subject, this topic, the prince, is really the most important topic out of the five weeks. Because if, if you miss this topic, if you don't understand this subject, you'll miss the rest of the weeks. But if you understand this, the better, the prince, you'll not only understand the rest of the weeks, I think you'll actually understand scripture as a whole. It's such an important topic. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, the title of my message is The Prince's and the prince. The princes and the prince. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that this morning as we read your word, that your word would read us, that it would reveal and convict and do what only you can do, and that is apply your word to our hearts and our lives so that we can live as more faithful representatives, your people, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in this city, and beyond. Speak to us now. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe all that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Ezekiel is a bizarre book. I think uh, we can all agree on that. If you've been here for some of the other weeks in this series, it is pretty mind-blowing and confounding and strange, some of the things that God calls this prophet to do. Uh, You may have been asking yourself as we've progressed through these passages of Scripture, what in the world is this guy talking about? Uh, Just now we are reading about ephahs and baths and homers and cores, and it's, it's just so foreign to all of us. And let me tell you, I have my work cut out for me this morning because one thing I try to do whenever I preach is just highlight and underline some words that are maybe a bit confusing or hard to understand. And uh, I was doing that in just my eight verses, and I highlighted 27 terms that I was like, yeah, that could be potentially confusing, kind of hard to understand. And uh, that's not just this passage. That's actually Ezekiel as a whole. It's just, it's a strange book. In fact, the the Jewish rabbis actually used to prohibit anyone under the age of 30 from even reading the book of Ezekiel. So you're in luck this morning because you have a 27-year-old preaching Ezekiel to you. And one of the many reasons, though, why we think it's really important to camp out in this book is because here at Providence Bible Church, surprise, surprise, we believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God. We believe that from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, that these words aren't just words. They're living and active words that God gave to his people so that we could understand his character. We believe that the Bible is inspired and authoritative. Secondly, we believe that receiving from the whole counsel of God is actually the best spiritual diet possible. We believe that there's something imbalanced if we were just to hang out in the New Testament all the time or preach our favorite Bible verses. And I have to tell you, if you came to this church expecting just a feel-good dopamine hit of Jesus so that you can go out and face the rest of your week, I'm sorry, this ain't the place for you. But if you wanted to join a covenant community of believers who want to not just be hearers of the word, deceiving ourselves, but actually doers of the word, putting our faith into practice, I believe you're in the right place. Thirdly, last but not least, we believe that all of Scripture, maybe Ezekiel 45 especially, is a unified story that ultimately leads to Jesus. And we, as the covenant community of faith, endeavor to live in and live out that story in our neighborhoods and beyond. But because we live 6,000 miles away from where this story first placed and 2,500 years later from when this story first occurred, it can be kind of hard to situate ourselves into this text and wrap our minds around what God's word is saying to us, not just then, but now. But that is incredibly important 
Because there's basically two ways of approaching the Bible. We can either approach Scripture and drag it into our world and make it say all sorts of things that the biblical authors never intended, or we can enter in with hearts of humility into the biblical world to see what God is saying to his people. So I want to take just a minute to reorient our perspective to where in the world are we in the book of Ezekiel. So first, it's helpful to know historically kind of who this guy was, Ezekiel. He's a prophet and where we are in religious history. Now, it is the year 2022, and so we go from, you know, 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000. We go from lesser to greater. In B.C., before Christ, before the Common Era, we went from the greater to the lesser. So we're starting back in 722 when the northern kingdom of Israel falls, About a century later, our guy Zeke is born, and then just a little while later, probably the most important event, one of the most important events other than the exodus in Israel's history, was their fall, their deportation to Babylon. They were overrun by their enemies. On July 31st, 593, we actually have the exact day that Ezekiel was called to be a prophet. I think that's pretty cool. He was called, and then uh, just a few years later, seven years later, the southern kingdom fell, and this is when Jerusalem is totally overrun. The temple is desecrated and destroyed. Uh, We have our passage today in 573, and Ezekiel is about 50 years old at this point. He's been called to ministry for 20 years, and we have our passage this morning. His, His ministry probably ended around 571. We're not totally sure. And then the exiles returned to Jerusalem in 538. So that's a little historical context. Geographically, we are in the ancient Middle East. Ezekiel 1.1 says that he was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the Kabar River. You'll see that right there off the Euphrates. Can everybody see that? This is helpful. Welcome to Bible school. We're doing Sunday school and church all at once. He's in Babylon, and uh, something that's actually really cool is he is among the exiles. At the same time, Daniel is among the elite. He is in Babylon as well among the leadership uh, getting thrown into the lion's den. I say the elite, like, oh, that's nice. It's like, no, that man, <laughs> he'd been thrown into a fiery furnace. He's hanging out with lions. Uh, he, he had a hard go at it. And then Jeremiah, another big, big figure in the Old Testament, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, is actually back in Israel. He's in Palestine. And then he eventually dies in Egypt, stoned to death at the hands of his people. And I think what a great reminder that God has each of us exactly where he wants us that we don't need to play the comparison game when it comes to calling. God has you where he wants you. He has her where he wants her. He may have another person in another country for crying out loud, but ultimately he has us where he wants us to fulfill his purposes. Last but not least, literarily, the first half of the book is really all about judgment. Specifically, uh, scripture says judgment will begin with the house of God. Israel and Judah are judged, and then the next seven chapters are this judgment being poured out on the nations. And finally, we get to uh, the good, the better, and the best, and that is the hope and restoration for all, you and me included. And that is the context that we approach chapter 45. If you have your Bibles, look down with me in chapter 45, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord God, 
enough, O princes of Israel. Put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. Back in chapter 19, God commanded Ezekiel to take up a lament concerning the princes of Israel. The word for prince can really be translated as the word for ruler or leader. That's all it really means. And evidently, these leaders in exile were oppressing God's people just as the corrupt kings of Israel and Judah had done in the past. These princes of Israel used the unauthorized mechanisms of violence and greed to mistreat and oppress and dishonor God and his people. Because of their malpractice, injustice and idolatry became the twin sins of Israel's past, as they are our sins today. We hear about weights and measurements, and we think of counting calories or baked goods, maybe. But when Israel heard this, they would have thought about justice. Think about Proverbs, where it says in chapter 11, The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. Or Leviticus 19, a passage which Ezekiel the priest, who has been called to be a prophet, would have been very, very familiar with. It says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales. The word there is just, righteous scales, and honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. The atrocity was that the very people who had been called out of slavery were now being oppressed by the household of God and he was not okay with it. This past Monday in our community group, two of our CG members who work with nonprofits here in the area shared about the real challenges and barriers faced by the homeless here in the city of Denver. I think it's no you know, surprise to anyone that we have one of the biggest challenges of homelessness in our city across the nation. Um, they told us about the heartbreaking barriers facing those without homes. And for about 40 minutes, they just shared their heart of what they face in their work, trying to help these people, these human beings made in the image and likeness of God onto a journey of freedom and wholeness and leaving lifestyles of addiction. So, so many barriers. And I am no expert on the multifaceted and highly complex issue of housing insecurity here in Denver. But after hearing my friends speak and reading this passage, I think if God was with us here today through the prophet Ezekiel, he would say, cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. Because I, what I don't want us to miss is that the issue of injustice is the issue of idolatry. They are one in the same problem in the eyes of God. Fleming Rutledge, who I've mentioned before, uh, wrote a book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. I highly commend it to you, especially with Good Friday right around the corner. And I want to take just a moment to read a lengthier excerpt from her book. She has a chapter called The Question of Justice. And uh, it's, it's that good. I hope that it speaks to you. Rutledge says, a slogan of our time is, where's the outrage? It has been applied to everything from Big Pharma's market manipulation to CEO's astronomical wealth 
to police officers stonewalling? Where's the outrage, inquire many commentators, wondering why congressmen, officials, and ordinary voters seem so indifferent. Why has the gap between rich and poor become so huge? Why are so many mentally ill people slipping through the cracks? Why does gun violence continue to be a hallmark of American culture? Why are there so many innocent people on death row? Why are our prisons filled with such a preponderance of black and Hispanic men? Where's the outrage? The public is outraged all over cyberspace about all kinds of things that annoy us personally. The NIMBY, not in my backyard syndrome. But outrages in the heart of God go unnoticed and unaddressed. The biblical message is that the outrage is first and foremost felt in the heart of God. If we are resistant to the ideas of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged about something, about our property values being threatened, or our children's educational opportunities being limited, or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming commitment to set matters right. What is she saying? The false gods of idolatry, Mammon, materialism, individualism, and careerism have creeped into the church, blinded our perspectives, and made us, made me, turn away from those in need. The solution to our idolatry and injustice, though, is not do more, be better. It's what Brian said just a minute ago. It's to love God and love neighbor. It is justice and righteousness. The two go hand in hand, and this is what the temple sacrifices were all about. So what exactly were these measurements? Well, I tried to do my best this morning to uh, put this into some American terms that we can understand. And so uh, I've got this 55-gallon drum. Shout out to uh, John and Kim Hyde for letting me confiscate this. This drum is 55 gallons, and this is about the equivalent of a homer. All right, so you're a farmer in the ancient Near East living in Palestine, and you're harvesting wheat and barley and grain, and you would collect these into uh, some sort of container that was about this size. And so you get these homers, and this is what uh, you would have as you stored your crops and you're good. Coming into the temple, uh, you, you have about a gallon that you would give to God of your wheat and barley. So from the homer for your wheat and your barley, you would give about a gallon to God. Then from your olive oil that you collected, again, uh, from, from a core, from a homer, about 55 gallons, you would give about a two-liter soda bottle uh, worth of olive oil to God. And then out of your 200 herd of sheep, you would take one little lamb and you would give it to God. Shout out to sweet little Amon for letting me steal her sheep. Thank you, Raheel. I will not sacrifice it today. I promise. But if we're getting the picture, it's, it's in verse, verse 13, you have the homer of grain, and all you, all you give is a gallon to God. In verse 14, from the same homer or core, you'd give about two liters of oil. And then in verse 15, out of 200 sheep, all you had to give was a little lamb. What's God saying? Out of all of this, give me this. This is all I want. 
I just want a small sacrifice from you. And we may look at this and be like, oh man, how could, how could God want something like that from them that's, that's so primitive, that's so old school that he would demand sacrifices from them? Well, it's actually worse for us in the new covenant because for us who are underneath the blood of Jesus, God doesn't just want 10%, the tithe. He doesn't want 25% or 50%. He wants 100% of what you have. Because newsflash, your house is not your house. Your car is not your car. Your clothes are not your clothes. It's God's house, God's car, God's clothes, because it all belongs to him. And he requires of us to be faithful stewards, to enjoy the good gifts that he's given us, but also to steward and share with other people. This is the vision of the sacrifices, that it was to be brought into, temp- into the temple as a holy offering to God, but it was also to be administered and used and to bless the people around them. God is worthy of our worship. Look down again today at verses 16 and 17. It says, All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths. All the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. And again, at this point in the message, if you are a skeptic, you may be thinking, all right, is this just like a get rich quick scheme for the church <laughs> that they just want people's money, that uh, they're making people sacrifice, and that they're applying this today? And, and, and fair enough, I, I get it. I don't want to sacrifice sweet Amon's little sheep either. But I would argue that in today's society, we actually still demand sacrifice. I'm not sure if you saw the Oscars last week. Uh, uh-oh, here we go. Um, but more likely than not, you may have seen the video of the slap herd around the world where Will Smith came up after Chris Rock had insulted his wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, and just hit him straight across the face. Now, regardless of whatever you think of Chris Rock's words or Will Smith's actions and words, he had some words to say, uh, I think we can all agree that there were offenses to varying degrees committed on both sides, which deserved some form of correction. It had to be dealt with. You can't talk to another man's wife like that. You can't hit another human like that. And I think what we saw was Chris Rock insulted Jada. Jada's husband took matters into his own hands. And now a week after vitriol and outrage on social media toward both sides, the Fresh Prince star has actually retired. He's resigned from the Academy as of Friday. A penance was paid for the crime that he committed. You see, either way you slice it, we still require sacrifice today, but we should not understand God's desire for sacrifice in this manner. Capricious, vindictive, malicious. No, these daily, weekly, annual sacrifices were rhythms of renewal They weren't violent efforts toward uh, placation or appeasement. They were God-ordained means for reorienting Israel's heart back to God. 
I think this is something that we actually lose where uh, this is not a temple. We don't have priests. We don't have offerings. But we, they had these rhythms. Think, think of what that would do to you growing up in Israel as, as a little boy or a little girl. And, and week after week, month after month, year after year, you're coming to the temple and you're sacrificing for God. Not a God who, who, who is angry and hates you, but a God who wants loving relationship with you so much that he institutes this system so that you can be with him. I want to ask you today, what are the formative practices in your life that reorient your heart toward the grace and mercy of God? At the beginning of this year, my best friend and I started confessing our sins to each other on a weekly basis. That's right, it may sound kind of strange to you or even unbiblical. Come on, Hunter, don't we just pray to God and he forgives and he knows and I can just kind of repent quietly in my heart. And I definitely think there's, there's a place for that. But every Sunday, I'll do it this afternoon, we pick up the phone, call each other, and we confess to one another as my Christian brother in Christ. We, we confess to God before one another every lustful thought, every angry word, every moment where I was lazy or arrogant or I, I thought too highly of myself, we share this with one another and we receive pardon from God and we give it to one another. Again, this may sound quite radical to you, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually says this, the famous Protestant German theologian. He says, in light of us leaving Catholicism where we, as Protestants, we don't have a priest that we go to or another person that we confess our sins to. And he says, well, maybe that's not actually the best in some way. He says, we must ask ourselves if we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. And it is not the reason, perhaps, for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not a real forgiveness. Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach with sin. This can be accomplished only by the judging and pardoning word of God itself through my brother. I can honestly say, and my wife can attest, this has been one of the single most important informative practices in Hunter Hambrick's spiritual journey to date of receiving not only the judging, but also the pardoning word of God through my brother. Why? Because mercy triumphs judgment. Yes, but the judgment must come first because if there's no judgment, then there's no justice. And if there's no justice, then mercy is not really mercy at all. You may not feel comfortable doing something quite like that, but as we approach the Lord's table in just a few minutes, I want you to consider God's judging and pardoning word to you. You are a sinner, yes, but you are forgiven indeed. Next week is Palm Sunday the beginning of Holy Week. We're in this Lenten season globally and historically as a church. And this is one of our God-ordained means and rhythms of renewal and reflection for us to contemplate the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. I encourage you to take some time during the next few weeks leading up to Easter to reflect and contemplate. Don't miss out on the mercy that's available for you by contemplating and reflecting on God in Christ and what has been done for you.
Last but not least, we must ask the question, who is this prince? One image that has helped me do that lately and that has helped me contemplate the forgiveness that I have, that we have corporately together in Christ, is this painting from Francisco de Zuberon. It's called Agnes Day. Zuberon was a Spanish Baroque artist from the 17th century, and this masterpiece, this oil on canvas, is a visual representation of John the Baptist's declaration about Jesus in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's so captivating about this painting, other than just the sheer intensity of color and the vision of it, is how resigned this little lamb is. How willingly, voluntarily, almost accepting the possibility of sacrifice. In the course of studying this passage, I read commentary after commentary, which said that this prince, this leader of Israel, is not the Messiah. And after studying Ezekiel 45 for weeks myself, I have to say, I agree. Jesus is not the prince. As we said earlier, the word nasi or prince describes a leader only generally. It doesn't necessarily give royal connection. The prince in chapters 44 through 48 is never once called king. At best, he's a patron and provider for the sacrifices, not an actual priest himself. In fact, he even has to present sin offerings for himself, something Jesus obviously never had to do. He has to join the rest of the worshipers as one of them and is severely warned against oppressing the people, as we saw earlier in verses 9 and 10. He's given rather limited power and authority compared to the older kings of Israel and Judah. And in chapter 46, we actually find out that the prince has sons. So unless you're a big fan of the Da Vinci Code, I don't think this is something that we can apply to Jesus. So what in the world are we to make of this prince? I think a good interpretive principle for all of us is that whenever we encounter scriptures that are confusing or, or we hard to understand, what we do is we interpret that scripture in light of earlier and later revelation. I don't think we'd get too far in the spiritual journey if uh, all we did was base what we know of God off of Ezekiel 44 and 48. As inspired as it is, the Bible is a big book. So if we broaden our perspective just slightly past chapters 44 to 48, we can look back at chapter 37, the one that Ray preached last week. And we hear God saying this to his prophet. He says, my servant David will be king over them and they shall all be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. David? I thought David was dead. But suddenly he's reemerging. He'll be their prince forever, a forever prince. All the kings of old died and were buried and never came back again. And as far as we can tell, this prince in Ezekiel 45 is never once identified with one of Israel's later leaders. And according to our passage, verse 17, this prince is supposed to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. Like Fleming Rutledge said earlier, this prince will make all things right by totally satisfying the utter outrage of God against sin in his very heart. 
So come on, Hunter, are you telling me that that's not Jesus? If Jesus isn't the prince, then who is he? I would submit to you today that Jesus is the better prince. Jesus is the prince who became the provision. He's the priest who became the sacrifice. He's the shepherd who became the sheep. Hebrews chapter 10 says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you had prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, we had been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet." For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Don't you see? Jesus isn't the prince. He is the better prince. The corrupt princes of Israel's past brought about death, but our priestly prince has brought about life through his death. Jesus didn't live uh, just among the people. He actually died for the people. He didn't just offer up sacrifices as a representative. He became a sacrifice as a substitute. He didn't just make things right between God and Israel. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So white people, black people, Asians, Hispanics, Native Americans, we can all freely enter into the presence of God through his body, the temple. Jesus is not the prince. Jesus is the better prince, the better judge, the better sacrifice, the better priest, the better temple. He's the better king. Because of his life-giving, sacrificial, willing sacrifice on our behalf, we have been completely reconciled to God and a sacrifice for sins no longer remains. As we approach the Lord's table this morning, let us remember the unfathomable sacrifice Jesus made, giving himself freely as the spotless sin substitute, the most precious of God on our behalf because it is through his death that we find life and through his life that we can live freely for others. Let us pray. Father God, we have so many real-time examples in our congregation, thinking of Arla, of people who are facing gross injustice, Many of us in this room have given our lives to see your mercy and your love given on behalf of the marginalized and the oppressed in our community. Many of us as well are facing 
the condemnation of the evil one who accuses us, who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we feel his accusation breathing down on our necks today. Father God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we come to your holy table, your body and your blood broken and spilled for us, that we would remember, God, that you are both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So that we, through your spirit, may be made just. We may be made righteous. We may be made holy because of not what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done, not just for us, but instead of us. So Holy Spirit, empower us to live justly, to live righteously on behalf of others, even as you willingly sacrifice yourself for us. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.